This is Tricks, Tales, and Twisted Tongues, Lying to the Holy Spirit. Um, I want to begin with a text that many of you may know um, from the letter to Titus, um, chapter 1 and verse 12. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. For good or bad, this sounds like something more you would read on Twitter or at a presidential debate than in the pages of Holy Writ. It certainly doesn't stand up to my, my mother's rules to me as a child about speech and writing. Is it good? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Apart from the um, regional or national prejudice in saying that Cretans are, are liars and, and lazy, etc., um, is the problem that there's actually a paradox here. It's called the liar's paradox. And that is that it is one of their own who says it. So if one of their own says that they're liars, then does that make it true? And how does all of that work? In general, the lie, Greek pseustes, and the liar, excuse me, pseustes, and the lie, pseudos, are viewed negatively in the pages of the New Testament, right? John chapter 8 describes the devil as a liar and the father of lies. In 1 Timothy, liars are lumped in with slave traders and other, other individuals. A lie, according to Merriam-Webster, and I'm going to read this lest I lie to you about the definition of a lie, is to make an untrue statement with the intent to deceive or to create a false or misleading impression. So now is the hard question. How many people in this room, by show of hands, have lied in the last 24 hours? Last week? Month? Year? You can always, at this point now, we're all liars, right? Because there's, there's been some point at which you have. Um, <laughs> the, now, now I need someone to be really brave. What lie did you tell? I lied to you about where I had lunch. Okay, there we go. Anyone else? Kids interrupt us, uh, my wife and I, during some intimate times, and. I had to not tell them the whole story. <laughs> okay. Anyone else? I told my friend I would attend this session. <laughs> and you did not attend? I'm here at yours. That's <laughs> <laughs> why so I'm an accomplice in the life. Yes. You know you Yes. I just wonder, is this confession? <laughs> it, it, it's just, it's just, it's an open and honest question about, about lying. Um, I, so when, when I teach my students um, every semester, I ask them what they think about lying, and is, and is it a habit that, that they're in? And, and, and my students are, are, are pretty pious. I teach at, at, at a Christian school, and when I'm not editing books and doing other things for a publisher, and, and they're very adamant, you know, you should never lie. And, and it just so happens that this semester I have a number of members of the girls' basketball team um, in, in my class. And, and I asked them, kind of point blank, so you don't lie regularly. You never intentionally deceive people. 
on purpose, lie to them. And they said, no, absolutely not. You know, we have a very strict code of ethics. Our team adheres by the highest rules. And I said to them, you never fake right and go left? And they look at me, and, and they think it's kind of cheesy. And I'm like, but you're lying, right? Like, you, you're doing one thing with the intent to deceive when you're planning to do something else. And then that leads us to the kind of this fascinating set of moral questions. And they, they say, well, no, that's part of the game. So if the game involves deception, then deception is okay, and then the conversation kind of devolves. But there's, life is full of these instances, right? And so how do I look in these pants? You look great in those pants, <laughs> right? I mean, there's just, that's the way, how are you doing? I can't tell you how many times people have asked me in the last couple of days, how are you doing? Great, the truth is, my head is like throbbing. I've had a headache ever since I got off the airplane. Like, these small little things we do. Consistent with the title, I want to talk about lying. And one of the most disturbing episodes um, in the Acts of the Apostles. Um, it, I've read Acts in a lot of different ways throughout my life in a number of different contexts. And have been struck the older I get by how violent the book is. Um, and, and if you read the book of Acts with an eye towards violence, passages start popping out to you that you read past pretty quickly. The story of Ananias and Sapphira um, bothered me, um, bothered me when I was a young man and bothers me still to this day. And it's like a number of stories that you have um, across the pages of, of the Bible, stories that I have never understood, I'm not sure I ever will, where you have instantaneous death, as it were, by a divine agent for some action that has taken place. Um, they, they are the stories that fill the pages of the Awkward Children's Bible. If you've never seen the Awkward Children's Bible, it's a fascinating text now in multiple volumes. But these stories, the stories that are hard to explain to kids, frame its pages. So what I want to do, and I'm going to get your help. I need somebody to read. I assume you have access to a Bible one way or the other. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Anybody will do. Yep. Yes, please. Okay. Yep. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did you not remain... Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And that, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Okay. What version was that, by the way? Um... Let me look. Let's see, I forget. English Standard? Got it. So what, what stands out to you or what questions do you have as you read the story? So you have a husband and wife. We're five chapters into Acts. They sell a field. If you've been reading Acts carefully up to this point, even in the preceding chapter, 
they sh they're sharing everything in common. It's this ideal community that's depicted in Acts. People are selling their fields. They're giving to the poor. They're sort of the shared community of goods. And then we come to this story of character Ananias and Sapphira. We don't know much about them. And they sell a field, or he sells a field, with his wife's knowledge, brings a part of the money, lays it at the feet of the apostles, and then immediately an interrogation begins, right? which results in his death. Right? Sapphira then comes along later. There's another set of conversations that take place, and she too falls over dead. Now, what questions does this raise for you? Well, there's a new, a new uh, leadership style in town. <laughs> okay. Okay. Put the, the old way of corruption and and uh, yeah. It is very mafia. Like nobody steals from me. Poof. Okay. Well, I mean, they were they were going to get prestige uh, by looking good. Okay. So that in, in the preceding episode, Barnabas shows up, right? And he, and he gives everything. He's the sort of model citizen. He sells the field. All the proceeds go, right? But this story is a little different. They hold back part of it. But how, does, how, does the apostles, how do they know? Oh, okay. This is a wonderful little caveat that we're missing a part of the story yes. here. Right? And, and what's actually interesting about the story is that he seems, Peter seems to have the same kind of knowledge that Jesus does in the Gospel of Luke. Yeah. There are repeated moments in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus mind reads, and Luke names it, like knowing what was in their heart, knowing what was in their mind, Jesus said X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. And there's, a, there's a, a theme in Acts whereby Peter and then Paul in the second half have the same attributes and abilities as Jesus. It's, it's kind of curious. They're not Jesus. But they share certain certain abilities with Jesus, and there are these interesting parallels. Okay, what else? Well, along those same lines, I see Ana, uh, Ananias and Sapphira uh -huh. not knowing God would know. So it's kind of the same as if Peter would know, then Sapphira should have known that God would know. Okay, so so this lack of knowledge or. or so you think, you think they thought they could yeah. just get away with it? Yeah, how could they not know that God would know? Or maybe they thought that nothing would happen to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. They thought they, God is silent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Others? I can't remember if this was laid out in previous verses, but I guess this is a 100% tithes situation. Well, yeah, so, so... To hold anything back at all. Is not okay. So communism is hard. So yeah. So it, in the in the prior story, Barnabas sells the field and gives everything, right? In the earlier in Acts two, there's this community where everybody has what they have. Um, we don't know, and there, there's important pieces of information here, is how much they actually sold the field for, which would help us actually maybe calculate how many people this would have fed or how many people this would have clothed. We also don't know what percentage they kept. Right, and there's there's all these pieces of missing information. But at the moment of the gift, at least in the story, Peter has what are superhuman powers in the in the story and the ability to perceive that something is amiss. Okay, now that is perceived as a lie to whom, or what? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. 
as light of the Holy Spirit, and then it actually gets rephrased in the same text, and, and there's a reason why this passage has come up in, in theological disputes through the centuries, because a light of the Holy Spirit is a light of God, which is, which is fascinating, right? And then what happens to Ananias? God drops him, or the Spirit drops him. Okay, the, the text is interesting here, because it doesn't actually say who the agent was, no. right? Now, I think as the reader, you're led to believe that this is not a heart attack, right, or a stroke, or a seizure, or anything like that. But it is different than the story we have about Herod, just a few chapters later in Acts, where it describes him as being eaten up by worms, and then he dies. But it's, it specifically says in that text, it was the angel of the Lord who was responsible. This text leaves it a little ambiguous. It does not indicate anything about physical violence that Peter himself wielded with his hand, right? His words seem to affect an action, and the reader is left connecting a lot of dots, okay? Was it fair? You tell me. I would say it was fair to Ananias that he lost his life because the way I read the story yeah. is that he did not tell the whole truth. I'm assuming that somewhere along the line he was asked, or maybe Peter just knew, that he did not give all. He was asked, are you giving all? And he said yes. That's okay. kind of my assumption, maybe wrong. Okay, but, but even... Even on that, so let's, let's go with, with those set of assumptions. So he was asked, he says, yes, this is everything. And so you think death merits is the correct... Well, since he, because of the circumstances that they were all in with community yep. and with giving to the community, but really to God's work, right. Jesus' work, Yep. And the community of people, yes. Okay. Others? Yeah, no, we're hands to make it. Yes, go. Oh. Yeah. Well, if, if either the Holy Spirit or God did whatever way you want to go with it, you know it, it, it's the hand of God, because that's what the people say later. They're just kind of worried about this sort of thing. And so, and so um, God, if it, God, Figures everything out. He, he knows the cards. He knows what to go. So it's always fair with him because he knows how the end game goes. To me, I mean. Okay, so it's a fair outcome. In God's mind, and I'm good with that. Okay. Now that, let me, let me in, in where the cross was. Let, let me kind of alter this just a little bit. So, any, are there any church treasurers in the room, or anyone who's who's, 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 who's handled who's handled the church treasury? That's. I've, I've occasionally been the person who was put in the room to watch the counting, like that double accountability thing when I was a younger man. Um, if it's discovered that the, the, the church treasurer is skimming a little off the top, can we kill her or him? Not in this day and age. Okay, I agree. I mean, it, but why not? It's against the law. Okay, yeah. But, but Peter didn't kill him either. Okay. So, 
but it doesn't mean we can't we can't have a certain amount of justice. Okay, so we, we pursue felony charges. Yeah, whatever you want to do. But not take them out in the in the church courtyard and break out stones and. Well, I would say that's not just illegal. It would just be morally wrong. And with your argument that it's right because God did it, is a bit of the euthyphro dilemma. You know, is is something right or wrong because God said it is? In which case, he's just making things up. And he could have said eating ice cream is evil. Could have said anything. Okay. Or is it? God reporting on what's right or wrong, in which case God's not all powerful because something, namely ethics, exists outside of his control. He's just reporting on what exists independently. Okay, no, this is. So, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I would say, if you're going to say it was right in that day and age, but wrong in this one, now we're guilty of moral relativism. So I would say this is regarding the question of fairness. The other impact was, in the, the end of that passage, the effect that it had on the whole community. Yes. It lives in terror, and it's an incredibly coercive way for God to operate his community. Where it's like, on pain of death, give me all your stuff. Um, that, and it also didn't seem like that was clear to the community beforehand. Like, that, that you weren't warned what the potential punishment would be. Consequences would be. Yeah. Uh, I like that you ended there. Um, am I assuming that these were Jews? That's part of my understanding that if they were all Jews and there was an agreement, everybody knew that they were to give all, well, all. Uh -huh. And they're Jews, which means in their history they have that thing that has happened so many times where, you know, there's history of God doing, you know, yeah. taking, yeah. And so it's fair because it looks like why would just this part, part of people forget while the other ones are complying 100%. So it's fair because you are in a homogenous society and there okay. was an agreement that we are giving all we had access, you know. Let me change it up a little bit. So I asked the question, was this fair to Ananias? Right, that's the male. The male actually brings in late. So now somehow, According to the story, there's a lot of pieces missing in the story. You know, we wish we had a little bit more. But his wife shows up next, right, and is unaware of what happened to her husband, but according to the text, is aware of the financial plan in place. Is what happened to her fair? Now, she's, now she didn't physically bring the money, right? She's just conscious of what happened. What do you think? She too suffers the same fate. I'm still seeing it as fair because God's rules are, are they're not changing no matter what how we perceive it. God's rules from the beginning up to that time are they're the same. That is a couple is one person. So if oh. you're lying, uh, you're gonna suffer the same fate. You're one. And death. Yes. So she lied. She she was. She passed the test of loving her husband, but uh, she failed the God's test. <laughs> okay, get yeah, Brandon. Um, two things. One, every time this comes up, uh, I'm a minister, and I'm happy for people to give half of what they sold their house or land for. You know, that it seems to me that they're they're giving quite a bit of money, uh, even though. And 
Contextually speaking, this is outside of the considerations, but yeah. if you want to donate half of your house to the church, I'm happy to accept that without killing anybody. Um, but the other thing is, uh, running with your definition of lying, uh -huh. they don't lie. Okay, unless we put, unless we do the fill in the story thing. Where yeah, you've got to supply a lot of stuff, because all it said is he sold half of his land and placed, or he sold his land and placed half of it. Yeah, it seems like the narrative logic is that he positions himself as Barnabas part two, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of the narrative logic. And so here we go, and then I'm actually holding back, right? Now, what's interesting, and, and, and I want to try to understand the, the, the logic of the action, is that as I said, the book of Acts is a violent book, right? So Saul, before he becomes Paul, um, has an encounter, Right? The, he is actively persecuting, right, what become Christian communities. Mm -hmm. He has an encounter, and as a result of that, he's struck dead, right? No. No. Mm -hmm. What happens to him? He's struck blind. Yeah. Struck blind, right? And there are other episodes throughout the book, right? So when you have the exorcist that interact, the sons of Sceva, that interact with the man who's possessed, they aren't killed, they're, they're beat up, right? And these, there's story after story, right? Paul, Silas, Philippi, right? They're similar kind of issues. The question is, the death, and, and I want to kind of leave this question hanging in the air, is does the punishment fit the crime in terms of what's going on? Because not everybody who violates the commandments of God in the book of Acts dies on the spot. Yeah. You run a stop sign, run a stop light, you get out there and you made it through. Mm -hmm. And one time you did it and you got fender bendered. Another time you got smushed to death. Sometimes you got away with it, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you get away with it all the way, sometimes you don't. God determines that. And that's kind of my point about okay, that, that, that God, God makes points sometimes. <laughs> There is occasionally a big price to pay. Okay, I'm going to leave some. On that end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to leave some questions floating in the air for just a minute here. Um, there's a couple of things we don't know in the story, as I've already said. We don't know how much the field is worth. We don't know what their take was. We don't know if the take was one percent. We don't know if the take was ten percent. We don't know if the take was fifty percent. Right? We don't know how Peter knows. The story is interesting, too, in that it doesn't Job style, right, take us up into the council of God for a discussion, right? You know, what should we do? I don't know what we should do. Should we blind him? I don't know. Maybe well, let's kill him. Okay, that's good. You know, there's, there's, the, the, the story does not take you beyond the human plane, right? It leaves all of these kind of things just kind of floating there. And it's, it's a fascinating literary product, right? Because on the one hand, you have the Ananias and Sapphira story. So it's like, it's a literary diptych, right? Mm -hmm. Story one, story two. It actually parallels Genesis in interesting ways. Because if you read the story in Genesis, you have the action that takes place. And then who gets interrogated first? Adam. And then Eve, exactly. Peter, like Jesus, can apparently read minds. Ananias, like Judas... It's filled with the spirit, right? And so you have these two categories of people. How does Judas end up? Dead. 
How, how dead? Right, well actually we, we, we have two different versions of, 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 of the death of Judah's story, right? We, we get a really graphic version in the early narratives of Acts that involves kind of the spilling of, of, of guts, etc., right? But Acts has this interesting way of locating people as either spirit-filled or devil or Satan-filled, right? And their outcomes kind of follow accordingly, which is interesting. In terms of takeaways, people die in the community you know, of the spirit in, in this story in Acts. And fear, and, and I want to be careful how I say this, but fear is an appropriate motivator for Christian behavior as the story leaves. What do you think of that? Because the narrative ends. Can someone read verse 11 again of chapter 5? Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Great fear seized. What do you think about that? Fear as a moral motivator. Well, it shouldn't be that way, but sometimes it's helpful. Okay. It seems at odds with the kind of long-standing metaphor of, of marriage being kind of a model for how we relate to God that it should be freely entered into, it's based on love, as opposed to this, which is entirely coercive. And if you, you know, went up to somebody and said, I demand that you love me, and we're gonna get married, and if you ever leave me, I'll kill you, that's probably not a healthy marriage. I think that's fair, yeah. yeah. Pro probably not a healthy marriage. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what this community is. Like, no, no, it's, it's others. I think there's, there's Contextually, in Luke Acts, there's fear is often the response of people to yeah. working with God. So Absolutely. It could be the, the legitimate like fear of, of death, uh, like we've been talking about, or it could be something more like the numinous experience of God, you know, in, in which there's something less rational. The, the, they're certainly overtaken, and, and what's interesting is that, at least in the narrative world of Acts, nobody repeats this. Right, so... Acts structures a world and a community as it presents these early Christ believers as it's sharing property, selling property, giving everything. Someone steps out of line, sharp contrast to the description in Acts 2, sharp contrast to the description of, of Barnabas in Acts 4, and, and they suffer immediate death, and nobody else gets out of financial line. Right? Now, you could argue that this is a narrative reenactment of 1 Timothy 6.10, right, which is the famous text that, that many of us learned as, as, as children. The love of money is the root of all evil. Is that the quintessential evil in the world? Because if you think about, now, the early community in Acts, and it's not described completely. I mean, this is not a 30-volume set, right? It's one book, so there's a lot of stuff left out. But these are people, and they did lots of things in the course of a day. But death is reserved for the mishandling of finances and the deception thereof. 
Is the love of money the root of all evil? It does. I don't know where. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. No, you're. It's it it, it. it. That theme is repeated in various ways across the pages of the Bible. I've heard an old preacher used to always say, "Pride is the big one." But you only got the Proverbs six. Right. The list. Yeah. yeah. So, let me phrase it this way: If you had to pick the sin that deserved death, which one would you pick? You just get one. Instantaneous, boom, you're out. Slander. Slander. Okay? Slander's a bad one. I think the only equal offense would be you know, ending someone else's life on purpose. Okay, you, you... Then it's a... The crime and the punishment are exactly the same. Right, and we actually have a character in Acts who was involved in the murder of other people that that person does or doesn't die. He, is it Moses? No, Saul. Saul. Holding the, holding the garments as they stone Stephen, mm-hmm. right? But I mean, that, in, in our logic, right, in our, in our legal code, when we talk about death, right, we usually reserve that for when somebody else has voluntarily, in a calculated way, operated to, to kill somebody, right? So we have, we have slander, we have murder. What else? What, what, what would be yours? Pedophilia. Pedophilia. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, certainly that sentiment gets expressed a lot. Instantaneous death. Acts does not narrate such an episode. But the story of Lot, it's okay. The story of Lot is, is problematic along those lines in the, in the Hebrew Bible, for sure. More than problematic. What would you pick? Waiting for somebody in the middle or the right side of the room. Oh. Well, I agree with murder. Murder? Yeah. I don't, agree. I, I don't agree with, with that because there's a story in the Bible where it says uh, the farmer you know, had somebody work for two, was it two hours and another one the whole day, and he paid them the same. So, but then slander has a way of killing a lot more people than one-on-one. It can really mess up an entire generation. It can kill more people. It's like yeast growing slowly. The tongue can do a lot of things, more than the sword. Any others beyond that over here? So is discord amongst brothers. Okay, it does that too. Sure. It, whatever you choose to exclude and, and whatever you choose to kill says something about your core values, right? Um, I, I, I have struggled at times um, through various institutions and obtaining degrees to explain um, the at times animosity, but the fervent spirit that exists in churches of Christ around issues of instrumental music as matters of, of fellowship. And, and I've, I've struggled to explain how that became 
a core value, right? Like every group, no matter what the group, has a set of core values, kind of non-negotiables. And what it puts in that little circle varies from group to group to group, right? And then others radiate out from there. And it may or may not be more or less true the farther out from the middle it is, but usually the consequences are greater when the core values right are at stake, right? And, and that's not true to this, I mean, not only true of Christian organizations, but it's true of a lot of different organizations. When, when you get at that, 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 that basic set of core values. So at, at my current job working for a press, copyright, right, and distribution of materials and the sharing of PDFs of books and chapters, those are all core values to the economic survival of the company, right? And so it, it, we, we do not share things. If, if you are caught sharing things, you know, distributing books electronically outside of the company, that's going to have a very severe consequence, right? When I taught at a university, the electronic sharing of files, although frowned upon, was not a core value attached to the economic existence of, 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 of the institution, so it didn't receive the same kind of attention, and so you would share and share alike. I say all that to say is that I wonder a bit about placing deception about money as the central core value. And I say that to say that it's perfectly consistent with the other themes that we have seen in the book of Luke and Acts. Like, how you handle possessions and what you do with those possessions comes up time and time again. And so you, you, read, you read a story that occurs in Matthew, you read the same story that occurs in Luke, and, and you can see visibly on the page that the author has an interest in how money is handled and how poor people are handled. It's not then fully surprising to me that the use of money gets placed at that center core in the narrative. And while it's not surprising, it's still disturbing. Because I don't think, I, I know I would not be in favor of murdering or killing um, the church treasurer who took a little money. Right? Or even in, in, in a debate about wills, if if a cousin or, or brother or a sister managed somehow to take a little more, I might be furious right, that there was some mishandling of something. But I don't know if I would actually want to go after their life. What commandments, going to the Ten Commandments, are in play here? Thou shalt not steal. Okay. So if, if, if we conceptualize that the property sold was actually God's, mm -hmm. right? Or they said it was, and they kept back part of it, mm -hmm. right? What else? You could conceptually get steal. Covet, in, in one sense, they coveted Barnabas's prestige, or like that. Okay. That, that's a stretch, but... Yeah. Last one's coming. It's a big one. Don't tell falsehoods. Don't lie. 
Okay, which was related to steal and false witness of a neighbor, but there's an even bigger one here. One of the big commandments. Yeah, that's that's an important one. Jesus said it's the most important. Yes. Okay, okay. Um again, what happens in the story? Ananias, Sapphira, sell a field, right? They show up and apparently present as though they're giving everything. They keep some of it back. Peter says, hey, 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 that's not going to work. And as a result, what happens? Yes. Thou shalt not kill. Do we have a false testimony as part of the ten? False testimony, yes, is part of the ten, false, particularly bearing false witness against a neighbor. But thou shalt not kill. Now, it, it, if you want to have a lot of fun with kind of moral problems um, and, and conundrums with the Bible, is the relationship of human beings and that command and whether or not kill should be murder, what's the difference between murder and kill, it's often on which side of the gun you're on, right? And I do not want to get involved in that, that discussion about the, the Hebrew terms or the Greek terms that are, that are used for them. But who is the agent of death? In this text, the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Well, both the Holy Spirit and Peter have a history of violence, so it could be either one. Peter likes chopping up ears, so. Okay. Well, where does Satan fit in here? Uh, this is what's interesting. According to the narrative, Satan is the agent responsible for the behavior. Okay, but not the But not the actual agent who elicits the death. Right? And as I mentioned earlier, it's, it, in the case of Herod, right, he's expressly kind of rivaling God. And the text says, the angel of the Lord showed up. He gets eaten up by worms, and then he dies. It's the same verb that's actually used of Ananias and Sapphira. Right? But the text, in addition to talking about theft, does directly intersect with the Ten Commandments on the question of death. What's interesting is that, and I said it in the abstract for the, for the class, which you may or may not have seen, is that the result of this episode is divine homicide. Now, I want to hold that there for a second. Is lying universally condemned in the Bible? No, no. Examples. Rahab. Rahab. The, yes. What does Abraham lie about? Abraham does lie a lot. It's, it's kind of a compulsive <laughs> set of behaviors. <laughs> right? So Abraham lies. Peter lies. Rahab lies. Peter. 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 Actually, there's an interesting case. We're not really sure what to do with it, but Jesus tells his disciples he's not going to do something in John 9, 10, and 11, and he does that very thing. Yeah, you can go read it. I'm not going to do that now. That's for, that's for a different class <laughs> on another day. Um, it, these stories go on and on and on. Does God ever lie? So what do you think? 
<laughs> no, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm asking you. So, I mean, the, the story we have, again, to repeat, Ananias and Sapphira claim to offer all of their belongings. We are left to believe that they suffer imminent, immediate death at the hand of God or another supernatural force kind of working with God for lying. And my question to you is, does God ever, or is God ever depicted as not telling the truth? So, uh, 1 Kings 22. Okay, 1 Kings 22. Tell me about 1 Kings 22. I had a feeling you were going to go there, Brandon. Well, I know it from memory. And I definitely did not just Google it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, that's a record show. Um, 1 Kings 22. God is uh, holding this covenant court and, uh, and asks to send the lying spirit out to uh, deceive people for his purposes. Okay, it's a famous, famous example, 1 Kings 22. And the story is different, the same version of that story is different in Chronicles. That, that's, that's, yeah, that's the, it's, it's the switch. Anywhere else? It's not one, but um, the serpent says that God will not kill you. But it's not God didn't lie. He's saying the serpent is saying that God didn't tell you the whole truth. Yeah, no, actually, this is one of the most famous ones, which has bothered theologians and has bothered the rabbis for a really long time. The initial instruction and what God says is going to happen to Adam and Eve if they eat does not happen. Yes and no. How they die, when they die, it's become a it's a theological problem. Like so, you, it gets argued in different ways. Like they spiritually died, their ability to live forever is removed from them, right? It, it gets it gets. But the presentation seems to be you're going to die, and it, and and the rabbis and Christian theologians have argued about that. Anywhere else? Depends on if you count omission, like refusal oh. to share the truth. Okay. Like that's a big part of what bothers me about the book of Job, where it's like this kind of bargain between Satan and God. Like, have you checked out my servant? It's like, yo, he only likes you because you're caving everything. He's like, well, no, that's not true. So they argue about it, and God gives him permission to murder everyone except for Job. But right. at the end, Job's like, did I do something? Like, why are you doing this? And God just yells at him about how you shouldn't question him. Because he didn't, he doesn't tell him the truth, which is why Satan made a wager and I couldn't turn it down. And so that seems like it's a glaring omission of truth. He just refuses to answer Job's very understandable question. It seems dishonest to me. The, the the question that um, that I, I pose whenever I whenever I teach Galatians to my to my university students, I make a really great case against the Apostle Paul in Galatians. And if you read the book of Genesis carefully, there's lots and lots of promises about God's eternal covenants and what it means to be the offspring of Abraham. And a part of that involves um, a surgical procedure shortly after birth to male anatomy. And I can make a really convincing case. I, I take on the persona of one of these teachers that Paul is opposing. And I say, okay, now listen, Paul, have you read your Bible? It's pretty clear if you go read your Bible there that you see the word eternal. That's kind of a long time. 
everlasting, goes forever. And what does it say you're supposed to do? You're supposed to be circumcised right. So you're saying that Gentiles are part of the people of God without this procedure? Can you not read? Or do you think God's a liar? Right, and that opens up a lot of discussion in class. I, I do want to say, and I don't want to belabor this point anymore, but there are cases both in Jeremiah and Ezekiel where the prophets directly say God lied. Um, they're angry, they're upset, and they're a direct text like that. The point of all of this is to say that the dialogue or the rhetoric of duplicity is not foreign to the God of Israel on the pages of the biblical text. There are lots of texts, of course, um, that talk about God as truth, there's no lie in him, etc. But if you read the biblical text carefully, there are these stories, these stories in Job, right? Covenants that seem to alter the rules once Jesus comes into play. And places where the, the prophets say to God, you didn't tell us the truth. So I'm back to Ananias and Sapphira. Does the punishment fit the crime? They died, according to the text. They died. Yeah. Well, it's like those two guys that... Um I don't know how to pronounce his name. Z Z Z I A H. Uzzah, yes. Yeah, that, you know, yep. mm -hmm. hold that off. And I mean, you just start or, or the Korites? Yeah. Where the earth opens up and, and assumes them. Nadab and Abihu. Yeah. These were all the stories that terrified me as a young man. <laughs> I was told if I ever, I, I, I kid you not, as a young man, um, I, I thought it would be a good idea um, to go in back into the, the church refrigerator and have some of the grape juice. Uh, one of those. The, the, I was one of those. Um, the, 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 the steward of the Lord's Supper was very unhappy to discover me in this case and read the story to me of Nadab and Abihu. Mm -hmm. And um, fear was a motivating factor at that point in my life. I never again went back and raided the, 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 the grape juice. But, the, but you're right that the Bible is full of these stories. But I still have to ask, does the punishment fit the crime? Because there are other stories where just nothing really big happens. Or there's a slap on the hand, or blindness, or... But death, death, I, I need not remind anyone, is kind of final. There's no do-over. <laughs> it's over. Yes? Well, for me, it's, it is. When, when God makes an action, he, he does sort out in his, in his in his mind where he's going with stuff how this is all going to turn out in the long run to him you know what might be a small deal to us is a big deal to him so okay. it's, it's so, so knowing you, the mind of, I suppose kind of knowing the mind of God where he, where he wants to go with it so, so you think it's a, it must yeah. it's a big deal then so you're going to kind of appeal to that this is logically just in the mysteries of the mind of God he knew something we didn't know. Okay. All right, that'd be okay. Okay. Others? What, well, I like what you said, and I like my thinking. I used to struggle with that, uh -huh. with why the Bible has got some things that don't add up. But after reading Job, 
I then learned that at the end, God explains, God has a prerogative. That's the word. Okay. And because it's not like us, and I wouldn't want to serve a God that I can say one plus one is two. He's got that extra one that okay. makes him un unpredictable and whatever and all, because he has that prerogative. And that is the one that ties all these little things that don't add up for me, uh, because he is the Alpha and the Omega. And what if uh, the people that he kills instantly, he already knew that at the end of their days, they were mm -hmm. not going to convert anyway, they were as good as dead today. Right. And perhaps that's why he chooses them, you know, as examples, who knows? You know, but to me that satisfies um, why the Bible makes sense to me, even though those things okay. don't Let me step back for a minute. Who were Ananias and Sapphira? Good question. Who were their parents? They don't know. The text begins in chapter 5 and verse 1. It says there was a man by the name of Ananias. And he has a wife, and her name is Sapphira. Where are they from? Don't know. How many fields do they own? We don't know. Do they have children? Can we say they were Jews? Because they were participating in a Jewish... The, the, I, I think we could say that ethnically they are Jewish. To me, that, that, that's, to me that's enough. Because... I look at it as God chose the Jews collectively. We don't have to get into the little detail. They belong to this one tent. So mm -hmm. they have a set of rules different from the Gentiles. Okay. So to me, I feel like they stepped out of the Jewish tradition, which was a homogenous tradition. They stepped out. So they deserved. Does, does justice differ? if the justice being meted out against the person has others who depend on them. What I mean is that in a contemporary legal proceeding, do, do judges stop to consider the effect of locking up two parents for life? on the children of those parents? Sometimes, but not usually. Sometimes, not usually. There's a lot of uh, other things involved. If there's other family that can take care of the kids, what was the crime that the parents did? Uh -huh. Did the kids hate the parents? No, is there bad blood between the two. So there's a lot riding on that decision that the judge is going to make. Just imagine with me for a minute that both Ananias and Sapphira have an elderly female that they're responsible for. Mother of Ananias, mother of Sapphira. And let's say that they have four children under the age of 10. Does it change your moral calculus? Would it change the outcome if that was what really that, that's my question. It may have. I don't know for sure. 
but it may have a different bearing on what happened to them. What do others think? Well, an earlier concern expressed was that slander is mm -hmm. really destructive because of the impact it has on the widespread effect. But this is murdering someone can have very even more tangible, immediate effects like what you're talking about. People who are dependent, it dramatically impacts their life. Wait, let's discuss who's dependent. The family of Ananias or the community that was going to benefit from the full, the full price, not the cut price? Well, where's, yeah, I mean, per Professor Thompson's question, I mean, if they, there was an elderly parent and four young kids that were dependent on them, not just for financial help, but just day to day, here's food, and I'll take care of you. Um, that kind of pretty dramatic negative impact, you know. The reason I raise this question is because as the text aligns its own moral compass, it seems very, very concerned with depicting a community that's in agreement, a community that cares about itself, that cares about each other, and it narrates the story in the book of Acts of these people who seem to violate the community standards, broad community standards. The implication of that is death. What is not discussed, and is often not discussed in the Bible, is the effect of discipline on those people immediately around the one disciplined. Rarely in life do you punish one without collateral damage to others. And the question of justice or she deserved it or he deserved it is often lost in the person and in the deed but not in the collective action. This has two implications and we'll close here. One, we as a society continue to think through our punishment system and how punishment is laid out often in ways that are not fair or equitous across ethnic groups and the effects of those injustices trickle down across generations and they change communities. It's not just one person who's going to prison for violating this or that, but it's a shrapnel effect. Right? Second is that in communities of the spirit, there's a similar sort of shrapnel effect. If, if you have ever been a part of a community where you had someone that you cared about be disciplined, that's a pretty traumatic event. I, 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 I'm old enough that I was a part of a community in which I still have vivid memories of someone standing behind a podium and reading a letter about a family member. And there was little concern for my young ears or young ears of others who cared about the person being discussed. The big takeaway is 
as communities decide what their core values are, what's at the heart of who they are, what they're willing to exert and inflict the greatest punishments for, they need to think very carefully about what's in that circle. Not what's outside or not what's inside, because for good or bad, right or wrong, the mysterious final justice of God escapes human minds. And we have to make those decisions. Right? And as we decide what those core values are and the way in which we're going to socially or otherwise punish those who don't live up to that core set of ideals, think carefully about the long-standing impact of that action on the people who depend upon that person. Excising the sin or the sinner is a seemingly simple solution. But the social web of that person and the people who depend on that person is much more complicated. And if we're not careful, communities of the spirit can create their own orphans and their own widows as a result of their own actions. Maybe not through physical death, but through social death and marginalizing. Thank you.